Hello and welcome to Angel's Costumes Behind the Scenes. I'm Jeremy Angel. And I'm Jonathan Littman. And I'm Richard Green. Today we're happy to release Jonathan's interview with Katrina Lindsay. Katrina is a designer I haven't worked with, so I found the conversation absolutely fascinating to hear her point of view from someone who has such a presence in the industry who I've never, never met. No, nor me. I mean, I've never met her and um, it, it, it is an... Very interesting interview, just how, how multifaceted she she is. And, and uh, you know, I'm very glad you got to interview her, Jonathan. But you know her anyway, don't you? She's my secret weapon. She and I, <laughs> she, she and I have, have, have worked together. I've associated for her. Um, we did an opera. Can you just explain what yeah, that means? Yeah, what does that mean, yeah. Costume Associate is the credit that I was given, um, which is basically a glorified assistant. And um, <laughs> it's it's quite a nice title. Is that like American vice presidents? It, it, I think it is an Americanism. Um, yeah. And because I have been given that title twice, I associated for Catherine Zuber on Richard III. Mm-hmm. And actually at the same time, I associated for Katrina on Dr. D, which was a Damon Albarn uh, opera that we uh, created, a devised piece in terms of the staging uh, that Rufus Norris directed that we for the Manchester International Festival and which went then transferred down to the ENO for performances during the Olympics. It was a fantastic process and part of the reason why I was approached to join forces with Katrina was because of what angels could actually bring to the project in terms of costume and manufacturing and process and it was uh it was amazing it was probably one of the most joyous uh creative experiences i've was that was that the production where you had the giant yes yeah we 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 created that um, is it still crated up here somewhere it's it's massive it was dismantled last year sadly because it was just it it didn't look as if the production was ever going to happen again and it was taking up the most inordinate amount of space and again have you just 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 explain that costume because um people didn't see the performance or see the costume when it came back it's a phenomenal piece in every sense of the word it was a spectacular stage effect um whereby within the narrative john d um through 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 the stars and scribing predicted the precise date that elizabeth the first should be crowned and we decided that the ascension to the throne would be represented on stage by Elizabeth I descending from above, as in born from heaven, in the guise of her coronate, the famous coronation portrait. Um, But in the instance of our drama, 15 foot high, yeah, it was it was it was spectacular and, and phenomenal in every sense of the word. It's massive this costume. John Dee, of course, just was um, was the um, sort of astrologer. Yes, court astrologer. Yeah. Which is- he was a he was Elizabeth's astrologer. She was a devoted to mystical and uh, spiritual black arts. There was a belief at that time that, and John Dee was working to 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 turn base metal into gold oh, yeah alchemy the whole and the, whole, the al- yeah the whole yeah. alchemy uh, ultimately it that did it in for him and he ended up kind of being turfed out to uh when he, when he couldn't when he couldn't come up with he couldn't, yeah <laughs> and he sort of he sort of segued off into the mad kind of freak carnival world shades of lord percy and black adder with i've discovered green it's also with, with katrina it's i if people don't know who katrina is and or they're not heard the name the work that she has done and the projects she has done are n- very very numerous but there are some massive productions people would have seen harry potter being an example the layman trilogy um bend it like beckham um and those are just sort of make more of maybe the the, the more mainstream, the yeah. theatrical mainstream that she's done, because she's a Tony Award-winning designer as well. So I think Katrina's work. I think Jonathan, you're completely right in wanting to speak to Katrina. I understand why. Oh yeah, not just the, not just based on the the the, the, the personal experience. The, yeah, the, the breadth that she covers in terms of dance and opera. Ballet, yeah, her body of work is is quite. Yeah. Amazing. 
isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's staggering. And, and yeah. to boot, she's an incredibly generous, insightful and uh, intelligent person. <laughs> which, which comes out very nicely in the interview. Yeah. It does. It does. And I, I don't think there's too much more we can say because I, I'm really excited to release this ep- episode because I think it's she's got a very unique voice and what she says and her process is fantastic. And I can't wait for people to hear it. There is one thing that I wanted to add that, that hadn't got itself going at the point that we interviewed. C- Katrina is um, one of body of designers who've established a, a forum um, during this lockdown time. Uh, called Scene Change, which is um, specifically aimed at theatre designers and their teams um, to give a voice to the world of design and all that that encapsulates um, at this point where people really don't know what is going on from one day to the next in terms of their careers, their the development of their projects. And this forum, um, which is... Um, scene-change.com full of um, opinions and and little bits of art and points of view just in order to give a section of our industry a voice that and to make them part of the dialogue going forward we will link to the the website in our notes as well so you can find it there as well yeah i think that's important i think it gives a, a very um, it gives it gives an idea of the bigger picture. Well, we hope you've been enjoying these conversations. We've definitely been enjoying hearing your feedback. If you have any questions, reviews, or just suggestions for who we can interview, please email us at podcast.angels.co.uk or visit our website, www.angelsbehindthescenes.com. Or you can find us on social media. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We are just forward slash costume podcast. And here is Jonathan's interview with Katrina Lindsay. So Katrina, I'm absolutely thrilled that we've managed to grab you to give us some pearls of wisdom. <laughs> let's hope. <laughs> yeah, yes, let's hope. But I'm sure that we will get pearls of wisdom because I've known you for quite a few years now and I'd like to consider you a friend, but yeah. I've also worked for you. And I know that I've always long admired your process and practice and, oh, and I've observed from afar when I when I haven't been working with you how you function with your teams and your management and producers and directors and and I've just always I I always find your process completely inspiring oh that's I think I'm not giving you a chance to say anything no it's lovely carry on I think it's important (laughs) that somebody with your wisdom and insight can contribute to a podcast like this because as I explained to you briefly before, we want to open up our world and make people aware that the world of design, which, you know, is so multifunctional in terms of the disciplines, whether it's set, costume, lighting, but ultimately it's all about the collaboration and the process of narrative and telling the story. And just to get us started, what, what I was very interested to find out from you for our audience is what was the light bulb moment for you in terms of your education what what made you suddenly realize that out there was the opportunity to take whatever you may have been doing dressing up dolls or making playing with action mm-hmm. men or you know whatever we do as children that that, that yeah. take our imagination to a certain place what made you realise that you could actually do that for a living? It, t- it took me quite a long time, actually. I really didn't know that there was such a thing called theatre design as I was growing up. I travelled around a lot when I was a kid. My dad was in the Navy, so I was always in different environments, always sort of sw- swapping schools quite a lot. And But the one thing that I had as my sort of core link through everything was art. I always wanted to do art and paint and yeah paint and make things through clay and you know so so quite tactile and quite kind of a lot of color and stuff like that so I always kind of had this idea that I'd go to art college and then alongside that I had also kind of been quite obsessed with you know watching films watching musicals when I was living in Italy as a kid my parents had the old 
Roger and Hammerstein's um, records, and I was obsessed with Yul Brynner and Deborah Kerr, and I, it, was a, it was a real kind of I would I would just stare at this record cover for, for ages, and and kind of loved all of those sort of films and musicals, and and so when I was at school, I also did a bit of drama, but acting, and I, it was it really took me to the kind of last year at school to realise that there was possibly something that I could do that combined the drama and the acting and the storytelling side of life with the kind of visual, painterly, craft side of things. But I didn't even really put that completely together until I went to art college, uh, where I came down to London and went to Central St. Martins. And during the foundation course there, I thought maybe I'd go off and still do fine art painting or maybe ceramics. And then we did this two-week course on theatre design, and suddenly it clicked. Uh. I just thought, oh, I love this. It combines everything that I'm interested in. It, it's, it's the storytelling, it's emotional, yeah. it's visual, it's historical. So it, that was when it kind of it finally encapsulated. Yeah. I, it, I've got this picture in my mind of you as a, as a little girl standing there in front of those albums with the bright Technicolor photographs of totally. Deborah Carr in that dress with your totally. Brenner standing there with his arms on his on his on his waist and yeah. and the color would have been so intoxicating the way that you know color photography heightens contrast and the way that the, the color and the fabric and the way the yeah. light folds with the fabric and yeah I mean it's interesting my sister often looks at work that I do now and she sort of can relate it back to all of those kind of childhood things that we were interested in you know the 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 biosmosis yes you can see the little details that have kind of and I I I, I am quite an instinctual person and I I I think for me the element of play or being slightly not like a child but having that sort of openness of a child is important and so maybe Mm. I can see why she can see those references in my work sometimes would you describe it as a naivety in the way that art, that, you know, a school of art would be called a naive school in terms of its simplicity? Possibly, yeah. I think it's, it's about being expressive and open and instinctual and right. emotion, emotional, emotive. I think there's something in that sort of expression that I think has got a real honesty to it. Mm. And so maybe there's something in that I'm quite interested in. And were you at school and at college, were you considered good at your craft? I, I definitely was seen as one of the, you know, the, the kids that always is in the art block, yeah. you know, in the, in the art school room. And I, I got on very well with my art teachers. And yeah, and I, I suppose I left my mark a little bit on the art side and on the drama side mm. uh, in school. And But then, you, you know, kind of come back down to a big city and you're this little fish in a big pond. And well, that, that, so, move, you know, that move to London must have been quite an upheaval in the sense that even though you'd moved around a lot as a, as a kid you were still within the environment of your family yeah was it an easy move did you did you come down and was it all about I know that I know things were slightly different in terms of being a student when we were growing up in terms of the support that you would have got from grants and yeah accommodation exactly, I did. and of course you know things were much on the one hand things were harder but on the other hand in terms of support there was actually support there in the way that it didn't just rely on parents today yes no I mean I think I kind of had I'd I'd come down on a a school trip to look at different art colleges and I think then I just fell in love I fell in love with the idea of being in London and I fell in love with the college that I was the, the building itself and and just the idea of kind of being able to do this sort of exciting course, foundation course in this big city. Mm. So I, and I actually left on my 18th birthday. I came down to London on my 18th birthday, <laughs> which was quite a, sort of quite a big sort of moment. Yeah. So, um, but uh, no, I was excited. I was excited for it. And, and any it friends down here, or was it? No, no, I didn't know anybody. No, so, um, but I stayed in a halls of residence for art college students, so I got to meet people there. But no, I didn't know anyone in London at all. Would you consider yourself brave at that time? 
or was it just a question of this is what, this is what I need to do? I mean, I think there is a side of me that likes to jump in when I when I kind of get excited about something or there's a sort of strong instinct towards it. Yeah. I've got a sort of tenacious, maybe I'm quite tenacious rather than brave. I have got a quality that I think from moving around a lot, you know, where I've had to th- put myself in different environments, there's a side of me that that's kind of will be able to do that because I've done it for quite a long time. I've noticed that quality about you because I think that out of the many people that I've come across in our world, that you have an inherent ability to step into situations that are not necessarily 100% within your control and and just kind of find a path. Yeah. I think that's a quality that then is exuded to the people that work for you and your teams. They feel like they're going along the same journey that you are. Oh, yeah. I, I think that's true. I think that's true, actually. The older that I've become, the more I can see that about myself and and where that comes from which is probably the pattern of my childhood right. and also that there is a side of me that kind of there's a sort of I feel it I can feel I, I think as a designer I'm I'm I never necessarily have a huge vision of something but I feel some I try to feel something so I'm always trying to sort of collect as much information in different forms whether it's visual or text or you know, music or anything that kind of gives me a sense of this sort of thing that I'm trying to search for, which is a feeling, which then Mm -hmm. manifests itself out into something visual. So, yeah, so I think um, I I, I do feel my way through things. Does that curiosity process stop or shift when you're not working or when you're working? Or is it all about building up your reference worlds and storing them however you need to do it, whether it's on a bookcase or in a computer. Are you forever examining the world around you and storing something either mentally or physically in order for it then to be drawn on? I think I'm sort of mentally store things, actually. You know, obviously when I'm doing a project, I'll be gathering it and it'll be kind of in material form and I'll be building up kind of piles of reference and piles of, uh, you know, and then I sort of order it into ways that my brain can take but but I think I'm quite I do I am a person that kind of I'm quite good at sort of standing still and absorbing yeah (laughs) sometimes it's you know I'm a bit of a tortoise really (laughs) in that way you know I kind of quite slow but the slow absorption is the thing that kind of helps me understand it and be able to kind of I think I think I gather my information in that way I think that's why directors come back to you time after time and you're able to build up these remarkable relationships of consistency and collaboration because I think that they sense that you don't waste your words and your process, as you describe as, you know, whether it's tortoise-like or thoughtful or, or even ponderous, it's, it's about, mm. I don't want it to be as glib as thinking before you speak, but it's not, it's not wasting a thought it's about corralling the thoughts and then yes and then pushing forward and it's for me it's about uh, allowing the thought to be absorbed and there's sort of layers of it the different layers of the thought you know and yeah. and that you know when you're working on a project it is a collaboration and there are so many different viewpoints and angles of it so i like to look at something 360 as much as i can and understand it from that sort of completely looking around all of it in some way that's part of it too, is not, not trying to just take my view on it necessarily. I'll have an instinctual feeling towards it, but I wanna I won't feel I won't feel settled until I'm kind of all the all the different thoughts have sort of sort of sunk into a place that creates the foundation in some way. Yeah, because I feel that the process that we've just been going through with, with you know, it, that we're in with these podcasts and how we're trying to draw insightful visions of, of the world that we all inhabit is that a lot of people who will be listening to this aren't aware of just how many layers and structures there are within the coming together of a piece, whether whether it's a film, TV production, theatre, opera, the the challenge of, apart from the logistics of coming up with the actual physical design, but the challenge of then presenting that design and seeing it through to the point that it's there in front of an audience 
is the most remarkable process that I think I've ever yeah. genuinely, I think I've ever experienced in my life. Yes, it's true. And I, I agree with that totally. I wonder whether, you know, you say you like to have a 360 degree vision, which helps then finally form your your final opinion. But does that mean then that you need a lot of time in order to gestate and then produce a project? Does it does a project is a project better because of the amount of time that you have available to spend on it? Or can that 360 degree in process be expanded and contracted easily? I think it has to it has to be expanded and contracted because each job the time constraints are different for each job in some ways. So, you know, and often you have to turn things around quite quickly or you don't have, you don't quite have the, it's all about timing, actually. You don't quite have the right conversation at the right time. Mm -hmm. So the conversation happens quite late on in the process, which is the one that kind of unlocks it properly in some way or, or, or it does take time of process of drawing and drawing and drawing and then suddenly something starts to happen. So, but it, but the thing with our sort of modern world and with the projects is that often you're having to turn around things quite quickly or you're working on two projects at a time in some ways. They overlap. Yeah, they overlap. We all know people that kind of get off on the adrenaline buzz of of keeping all those balls juggling in the air. Yeah. Does that petrify you? Does it does it does it <laughs> frustrate you? Do you lose sleep at night? I think I used to and then I went through a phase where that was really the pattern and and so I kind of managed, I somehow managed it. You know, you find your systems of managing it, you know, being able to keep the kind of freedom of things being, a, there's still sort of something open about it, the design and where you're going as you're going into rehearsal while you're kind of trying to organize all your references, maybe for another project. And I just, yeah. I found mechanisms in my daily sort of, to-do list of being able to juggle it a bit so I don't it doesn't terrify me as much now but there was definitely a point where it suddenly went from longer smaller projects that took up a year to actually bigger ones multiplying on top of each other and just how to work that out you also have great teams of people around you as well and it's about keeping that communication going and pushing through. That's an interesting point because sometimes I wonder whether designers at the top of their game, which you are and currently with the body of work that you've got on your CV, which is quite remarkable, of internationally acknowledged. But I, I wonder sometimes if you may take a job because you feel the need to feed the, the teams of people that you collaborate with because of this of the importance of of the relationships and keeping everyone in sync one of the things that I always think about is uh, and it's happened to me a couple of times where I've not taken a job that's been offered because I haven't been able to get the right combination of people mm. to work with me because the people that I'm familiar with are either on oh, jobs or busy. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I, I mean, I have, I, I feel like I have never taken a job just to feed the idea of doing the job. I feel like I always take jobs that excite me, you know, I get excited by the idea yeah. of it. And then sometimes halfway through it, I'm going, oh my goodness, what was I thinking? You know, why was I, why did I think I could do this? But, but the initial contract of doing the job is because I'm excited by it. But but similarly, if I got excited by something that was quite big and my team, you know, of like Sabine, who I work with a lot as a costume supervisor, if she wasn't around to do it, then, then you know, there's other, yeah, I would probably have to consider it slightly differently in some ways. Um, mm. But I don't do the job to feed the sort of the machine of us in some ways. I just, I do it because I'm excited by the job. Yeah, that's the right answer. Thank you very much. <laughs> I was just... I was... <laughs> Because I, I do sometimes, I, yeah. As I said, I sometimes sense that there's this, there's a there's a panic that if if all the ducks aren't in the right place, it, the the process will implode. I think a perfect example actually would be to you know mention that with Harry Potter, when the availability check was made, I, I, I presume it was an availability check in the in the sense that would you come in and meet with John and yeah, I met John, yeah, it was have a conversation with John, yeah. You would have had 
a connection with his world anyway, wouldn't you? You, you? You've come across each other before. John and I are sort of same generation, actually. And uh, so, you know, while, while I was sort of coming up, making my work, John was doing his as well. So I always knew about John, Tiffany, actually through a lighting designer, Natasha Chivers, who had worked a lot with me and Rufus. So I, I knew about John, but we hadn't ever met. And I also, uh, through Stephen... Um, Hoggart. Hoggart, sorry, yes, yeah, Stephen yeah. Hoggart. And we hadn't actually met until we met for that conversation, but we'd known about each other. And, you know, and I'd seen Black Watch, so I'd seen some of his stuff. So, yeah, but that was actually the first time we'd actually physically met each other. Because I thought the connection with Frantic and, and then that very interesting physical if you like, fringe world of theatre that then fed into an amazing style of design and theatre and narrative Mm. that is is kind of where we are now in the world in terms of what, you know, of what audience are coming to see in the West End. Yeah, I mean, I think it was the time we grew up in and the fact that we, you know, I had a company with Rufus, John had uh, his sort of uh, work that he was doing and Stephen Hoggart had Frantic Assembly. I, I, I feel with... Um, with Harry Potter particularly, that the people, the creatives that John put together are all people of a similar kind of um, aesthetic in the type of theatre yeah. that they would probably create. Um, we're all kind of, mm. we all believe in the sort of the sort of alchemy of what theatre can be and in its storytelling and the, and the use of the audience's imagination in that. So I think that's true and I think probably it comes, some of it comes from, the time that we grew up in and the, the way we had to make theatre maybe and and the way we did make theatre, but also just the type of theatre artists we are, I suppose. Do you think that process of theatre making is possible today? I, I don't just mean in this current climate yeah. and then what will yeah. ensue with the work that we come out into. I don't know. I hope so. I hope, I really hope so. And often when I have like, young designers in my studio with me or, you know, people who are collaborating on projects with me who are, who are sort of just recent graduates or emerging. And they, they're, they're struggling to find jobs or they're doing jobs where they're not building up necessarily relationships with directors. So they're sort of one-off things and they're really, really in isolation. I always say to them, for me, I think the best thing you can do is to find your contemporaries around you who are telling stories that you're interested in telling and build up your own company and your own way of doing it rather than necessarily going into a, another designer's studio and just you know ending up model making and not really having much contact with the final product mm. I always think it's it's really liberating and enhancing if you can find people within your generation who are trying to say the same things as you through that medium or who you just spark off, you know, because that means that the the theatre industry has the next generation coming through, which I think is really important. I sense that there's, especially in terms of costume graduates, that there's a there's a sense of panic mm. whereby they, they're built up through their process of education to finish and a sense of entitlement befalls them in terms of what, what direction they're going to go in. And I'd like to think that, that they maintain an openness and yeah. a willingness to do whatever it takes. I do think it's because of how they're taught. And I do think that that's then about finance and money and, and trying, to make a, you know, trying to make a living within, a, within yeah. one of the most expensive cities in the world. Yeah. And also how London-centric we all are in terms of theatre and how the subsidised theatre and and fringe theatre in terms of how it was when we were growing up yeah sort of doesn't exist in the same way yeah I mean I I feel like this industry is not a straightforward industry and I think ultimately you find your own path through it you have to navigate a way through it I mean I think as more experienced designers we can help and mentor and we can kind of be there for support but but ultimately you know it is about an individual's voice adding into the mixture of the storytelling or or whatever yeah. project is happening and so you have to find that you have to find that yourself and and you know for years I felt like an outsider definitely when I was had my company early on and I didn't really feel like I knew you know that I was part of the industry of it but I still had this urge to tell stories and create pieces of theatre and 
And actually, I now look back on all of that and think that's a brilliant blueprint for everything that I do now. So whenever I go into any project or or have to work with any departments, I've kind of that that is definitely a blueprint that those years of kind of being on my own and having to work it out myself, I use completely. Was there a turning point when, when again, you know, I, I asked you about the light bulb moment, but was there a point when you, you could say to yourself that, ah, okay, I, I know, was there a production where I know what journey I'm on now? I know where I'm heading. Yeah, I think, um, well, when I sort of got, invited into the industry a little bit which was through doing some work at the RSC and that sort of I think that was the first time I'd ever worked in uh, an environment where it had different departments that would make things for me and you know or with me and I could talk to real craftspeople about my ideas and it would get realized you know it was it was lovely I mean I you know it was terrifying because I had to really convince myself that I knew I was talking to talking about to these people but I also remember at a certain point just thinking this is great I can learn loads here I can learn so much from working with all these craftspeople you know if they were asking me questions that I didn't really know I'd just kind of think about it logically or or do some of my homework on it and and be able to kind of navigate my way through it so that felt like a a turning point in a way for me. And, and what an amazing environment to have that turning point in with the security yeah. that a company like that can afford in the sense that it's there at your fingertips and it's what you make of it. Yeah. Did you never then associate or assist prior to the point of graduation no. step into your, your own work? Yes. It's quite interesting because I, I, I sometimes, you know, I look back and I think, oh, I say these, I say something and actually it happens in a way that I don't necessarily know where it's going, but actually it's, it's the right direction. So when I left college, one of the things I said to my tutors about what I was interested in when I left was that I wanted to be part of a new company. I wanted to be for my work to come sort of be created from the inside out through a rehearsal process and to be working with actors in that way, you know. And then I got a phone call that summer from a, a young company that was starting something up to go to Edinburgh and do a show. They had no money, but, uh, you know, no, no money for me, but also no money for the budget. And we did this show where I sort of made all the stuff and, and invented it all. And what was it? It was called The Geese, and it was at the Richard DeMarco Gallery. And anyway, it won a fringe first, and then suddenly the British Council and some other people wanted to take it on this tour. So actually, I found myself in the first two years of leaving college going on this amazing international tour to Romania just after Ceausescu had, had been overthrown, where I was doing installations in all these fantastic odd buildings all over Romania. Then we went to Hong Kong and then we went around America. So, it, you know, and it, they took me because they didn't have like money for the design. So they they took me and I would just create these things in these spaces as we went along. And it, it was amazing. You know, it was an amazing thing. And it also it was. And then that led on to me coming back and actually meeting up with Rufus. And we had a company. Um, well, it was a place called Arts Threshold, which was an extension of the company that had taken the piece up to Edinburgh. And we had a basement in Paddington that we used to do work. And then out of that, Rufus, Natasha, who did lighting, and I set up a company. So, and then our work grew from there. So I know I never went down the assistant associate route. I was sort of straight in at the hands-on fringe level. Which, you know, is is so intriguing because that's another way of doing it and just highlights the multiple entry levels and then and then how that forms your process but was was that when so was Rufus Long out of being an actor no I mean the 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 whole company that had started with the fringe one was set up by this guy Brian Asprey who had been married to Yvonne Bryceland who was this famous South African actress they'd set up the space theatre in South Africa with Athel Fugard and people like that and Brian had been a tutor at one of the colleges I think Lambda and had had this you know, his philosophy was, don't wait for other people to get you, give you jobs. Why don't you, as students, form things together? And, generate your own yeah, work. Yeah, generate your yeah. own work. And that's that was who invited me into design. So I think Rufus was the next generation of that, had just not long recently uh, graduated from RADA as an actor. 
and he was looking to do to you know put on work direct work and was looking for a designer and I was around and so we met that way and then got on and actually did a few shows together and then decided to set up this company so yeah it kind of evolved so the openness and and just going back to the having the 360 degree perspective has enabled you to function in in multiple disciplines and unusually for a designer in terms of how you will quite happily and easily switch from set and costume and both but not just that but also function within television film opera theater and do you have a preference is there a medium that where you can express that makes you feel the most comfortable and secure and creative i think live work I, you know i've done i suppose the majority of what i've done is has been theater sort of text-based stuff um but i love i do love dance i find that fascinating and i i love the kind of physicality and the movement and how you have to kind of make your stuff work alongside that. I love that. So possibly I feel most comfortable in those areas. Yeah, I mean, I just know less about film and television and opera as well in some ways. Uh, but I, with opera, I love doing, I actually love just specifically doing costume. <laughs> There's something about the scale of the choruses and the pictures that you might be creating with costume and the amount of work that that takes as well, that I actually really love specialising just in costume with opera. But for the rest of the time, I kind of love doing the whole world. Is that paramount, though, being in a position to do the whole world? Or would somebody... Is the initiation that, Katrina, we'd, we'd love to meet you for this project. Will you come in? Yes, I'll come in. This is your answer. Yes, I'll come yeah. in, but I'm afraid I'm only going to be able to do costume. I can't do... Or I can only do set. How does that configuration work? How does it how does it get divvied up? Uh, I think well, it's usually people either approach me to do both, or they approach me to do costume. And you know, and again, if the if the project feels intriguing to me or excites me, I don't I don't mind. I've had so many great experiences where it's just been specialising in costume, which I've loved. You know, and it's totally enhanced my work and my world. You know, I do love that side of, of it. But similarly, mm. especially with people who maybe I've worked with a lot and, you know, there's a di- we know the shorthand and we have a dialogue, I do like the opportunity to do the whole world, you know. Mm. But, but I think sometimes, I don't know, maybe this is just me imagining, I think sometimes I'm asked maybe with theatre projects just to do costume with the understanding that, I come in with a level of knowing about everything, you know, so that the dialogue that we would be having as a team is about everything. And I think that sometimes I feel like I can contribute quite well when it's just specialising in costume because I have a big, a bigger understanding of the whole world of it and how that might be being created too. I would go one stage further in that instance and I would say that they that you're brought in because you create a very special balance within the creative team. And I think that's been proven project after project, certainly projects that I'm I'm aware of, whereby your contribution and your process of working and the people that you have working around you, for want of a better expression, do not demand high maintenance. Yeah. In the sense of it's not it's not ego driven. It's it's about the piece first and foremost yeah definitely as I said earlier you and I go back quite a few years now and I remember my first first encountering you through the work that you used to do for Robert Shavara oh yeah yeah for uh, ETO and then and then your association with Ricky Beadle there yeah. And again, it was, you know, almost guerrilla, guerrilla work, if you, <laughs> you know, as in, as in. I have, a, I have a very clear image of you, actually, when, when I was doing metrosexuality and we were doing this big set sort of construct, well, not construction, sort of set dressing in this environment. And you came down to the set and I remember I was sort of, I don't know, sticking up colourful paper onto windows and yeah. stuff like that. And I just, I have a real image of you. At the other side of the room, just there, and yeah, it's. I love that. I love that. It was in the school building, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, it was. it was. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, and I remember that too. And I and I actually think that observing that experience and then seeing the opera work that you were doing, Robert, and 
just and and making me realize oh that's kind of that's what it is and and prior to that i'd been at angels for many years and and you know working working away as a costumier and learning my craft and training yeah and actually at that point not really looking to expand it in any other way because of the because of the trajectory of what was going on for me at angels in terms of you know as the company expanded so my so my role and position shifted but I suddenly, in the back of my mind, I think it was meeting Kafir, number one, then it was experiencing his collaborators and that world, and then suddenly thinking, oh, you know what, this this is very exciting, this is very dynamic. Yeah, and you can do it. At, well, at that, point, it. at that point, I didn't know whether I could or I couldn't, and I, I didn't have the, the machinery, but it was watching and observing, and then serendipitously, years later, having that opportunity to work with Rufus, yeah. who I had met through you because you had brought him into Angels when you were trying to clarify a style feature for Liaison Dangerous. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Yes, yes. I had never met Rufus before. This is for our audience. This is Rufus Norris, who's now currently the artistic director of the National Theatre. Yeah. I hadn't met him before. And I was, and again, I was absolutely transfixed by your you and his dialogue and the kind of conversation you were having <laughs> which uh, I've I've sort of took away with me and and uh, found absolutely uh, it was like it was enticing by that point we'd known each other for a long time and you know had yes been in sort of you know running our own company which was sort of probably dwindling by then but yeah we'd been through sort of many battles I suppose not you know with each other but also also just to try and get work on and Mm. I mean, that's why I like my trajectory in terms of my work of being in rehearsals and being able to, you know, have those dialogues, really close dialogues about staging and about physicality and character. And I think Rufus and I have such a shorthand in that now because of those years of basically putting this stuff on together. Well, I, and, and that was all perhaps brought to its zenith when we were all working on Dr. D. Yeah. In the sense that it was a devised piece. Yeah, totally. <laughs> for a prestigious arts festival mm. where it wasn't a question of there being money, no object, but everyone was prepared to explore what it could possibly be at its very best yeah. within the constraints of time and space. Yeah, and that was the big constraint, wasn't it? Time because you know it was clear that it needed to be a sort of uh, Elizabethan uh, period kind of sensibility but without the time to actually construct that or you know in terms of making or um, you know so that's that's when the collaboration with you and your relationship with Rufus and your relationship with Angels and our kind of shared history and friendship that really that felt so great I just loved the fact that we could do that together it was an amazing experience because again what it also indicated to me and and I think it's very important for people to be aware of is that bearing in mind the time constraint which was really our our only Mm. constraint ultimately really actually was the fact that we could we could take uh, stock from angels. We could utilize a resource yeah. that was so remarkable in terms of how we then were able to work with it to to create the world that you had envisaged, that semi-poetic, yeah. Elizabethan, abstract, balletic. I mean, we had everything. <laughs> we, we had dance. We had singing. We had, we yeah, had acrobatics. and and. and We had a real responsibility to the piece, Mm. the performers, and we made everything fit for purpose. I thought to have the resource of angels and, like you say, the sort of way we could kind of mix it up, the eclectic mix of everything. And it was just, it was like a godsend, actually, for that project. And that wasn't our creative whim in terms of mixing it up. The piece itself demanded that that there were elements we had to tie in a contemporary world and you know a political contemporary world and a a philosophical world and we would never have been able to have achieved that without without the components and working our way through the racks and you know whether it was a a fill-in from the 18th century or the 1950s or a, yeah. a collar from yeah. Puritan England. It, yeah. it was just remarkable. And then to see it on stage in Manchester in that environment and then ultimately yeah. down at the ENO was, was a real thrill. 
and all of that is builds you know of course it it's it's part of your journey but it's also the effect that it has on everyone that's that's around you and it's part of it but also an audience you know we're back to the audience it's it's the experience that you as a creative wants to hand over yeah you know it's it's yours now yeah take it <laughs> i agree i i thought i think that's what i love sometimes about the actual job that we do is it's there's, there's all the different types of ingredients that go into it which make it piece that it becomes and mm. and it's how you manage all of that isn't it that kind of well, the alchemy of yeah, it, yeah the alchemy of it that's totally it the alchemy of it is what gives it the energy which then gives it out to the audience I think it's magical that is magical as a designer from just to touch on the costume angle of it do you feel under pressure when you're brought into a project to have at your fingertips complete understanding of the, the current technical um, abilities that there are, i.e. 3D printing and computer graphic embroidery work? And, and do you feel the need that that kind of science has to feed into your work? Do you, do you embrace it? I think for me, the starting point is always the, the character and the story and the sort of emotional journey of the character. And then when I'm sort of delving into that, maybe through drawing, which I, I do always draw because it helps me kind of just, actually it helps me give the time around my, my you know, space to allow my brain just to kind of sink into it. And a lot of the drawing I'm rubbing out <laughs> as I'm drawing, but kind of it, that process somehow allows me to, really start forming kind of the sort of reference points that I might be wanting to bring into whatever the costume is and so maybe in that moment depending on the character and the story and the sort of setting world of it maybe then I might want to you know look at the science more sort of science-based aspects of the job like 3d printing or whatever but it will always the core of it the starting point is much more simple and, and it's mainly about the actual character and its journey, its emotional journey. I wonder sometimes whether the embracing the facilities that are, that are now available to us, whether sometimes the opportunity to use a technique can sometimes override what might be the narrative and the story, the backstory of why that item is what it is. And as opposed to it being a decision made based on budget. Yeah. Is there a lot of techn technological fabric kind of wizardry on Harry Potter, is it? I mean, I was just thinking Harry Potter probably is the one maybe sort of area, story, where you might want to look into that side of things because, because you know, you're trying to create an illusion of, of magic on stage. So I, I, when we were doing some workshops for that, I remember I was looking at sort of um, kinetic structures and, you know, how I might be able to kind of make some wings expand out of a back and all of that sort of things. But actually what I often find with theatre is somehow sometimes the simplest kind of human-based... Uh, Sleight of hand. Yeah, can be more magical. And I think that really works for Harry Potter a lot, actually, you know, that you can't actually quite believe what you've seen in front of you. But actually, the the theatre mechanics of it are quite simple, In although they take a lot of, lot of detail to build up and layering, they're actually quite simple practices. But definitely, again, with the Harry Potter stuff, I know that, you know, when we were doing the Dementors and stuff like that, I... I had this piece of super fine organza in my bag, which I'd had been carrying around for from a ballet project that I'd done like a year or so before. And in one of the workshops, we were talking about Dementors and I brought it out of my bag because it has this, I don't know how, it's, it's amazing fabric, sort of Japanese fabric that has this sort of other quality to it. So when it moves, it has an extra bit of movement in it. So it, it's so light and so airy and can move in such a way that it almost looks like smoke and so I I'd brought this out my bag as a sort of like oh there's something in this that might be interesting for Dementors and so you know the if I hadn't known about that sort of technology of that fabric mm. having kind of been exploring it from another project then I would have maybe explored that a bit more but it was just it was amazing to be able to kind of use a fabric like that which is so kind of advanced in its technology. Did that then end up becoming what you use for the Dementors? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 
And it sort of dictated how I did it as well, because I, I, I knew I knew that it would have this quality that you couldn't quite you couldn't quite tell what you were looking at. Yeah. And that that felt really interesting to me. It felt like it captured what they are, which is soul suckers, you yeah. know, <laughs> they suck yeah. air and soul out of you. And it just felt like it gave that quality, you know, that you'd be able to sort of get that from it as a live experience. So yeah, that is what we used. And there truly is nothing more special than achieving an effect in a live environment that needs to happen on a daily basis. Yeah. <laughs> the, the kind of the risk taking that that's involved. There's a very, very straightforward, simple, magical device that we drew into our Fiddler on the Roof production. And, um, yeah. It was because of our lack of budget. Paul Keeve was our, our magic consultant, and um, yeah, he was presented with the task. and And I'm and I was very appreciative of the fact that you know we were all around the table to talk about it rather than just being presented with a fait accompli. And um, he, yeah. he took on board every aspect of what we were discussing and sort of delved into his kind of library of tricks and came up with a trick that he had actually developed many years earlier with Christopher Oram. And it was basically a living statue, mm-hmm. um, like the kinds of statues that you see in Trafalgar Square, you know, um, Yoda and yeah. appearing yes. to be floating. And it was then... <laughs> It was once everybody had agreed that that's what was going to be used, and I saw what they had originally created as the clothing for that trick. It was all then ceremoniously handed over to me, and I was and I, <laughs> and I was instructed that it needed to be well. I, I basically had to create a world around it that fitted in with our narrative of you know 1905 yeah. rural Russia and it was just it was a yeah. it was a wonderful process but it's it's definitely a process that could only have happened in a theatrical environment the world of film and television just it, it would never have been as charming if if we applied the same devices to film and television yes. as it was ultimately in the yeah. in the show it's the thing of collaboration isn't it yeah. and it's also the thing of imagination like there's always a bit in theatre where you leave a little bit of a space for the audience to fill the their the imagination yeah. their imagination into it yeah. which kind of finishes it off in film and tv it's, you have that less i think i think in um film and television you have to think for them whereas in theatre you you can leave thoughts to the audience more mm. yeah and i think a lot of it does depend on the environment that you're watching that particular production in but generally speaking, I think that successful theatre takes you on a journey. Yeah, totally. Feeds you through the world in all its glory. There it is laying out in front of you. And it is the most exciting thing. And I, I think for me, that takes me back to being a child again, because I'm sort of, it's unfolding in front of me before I even have time to think about it in mm. some ways. Mm. So I'm really absorbed in it. I'm just completely absorbed in it. Mm. And um yeah, I think that's what what I like. That's quite wonderful. And is is there just finally to kind of you know unfortunately wrap this up? Is there a single piece of advice that you'd give to someone wanting to become a, a costume designer, set designer, you know, a, a designer within within our world? I think it's really important to understand what you find interesting about things. I was thinking about it as we were talking that you know that. It's to trust your instinct on something, to realize that every situation and every job you're going to learn something from. You know, all of those, when you were just talking about the piece of magic and Fiddle on the Roof and thinking about the magic that we created in Harry Potter with with Jamie Harrison, who did all the illusions with us. But, But for me, all the jobs leading up to that job are the journey that makes me able to do that moment, you know, understand how to collaborate and how to put these pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together. So, yeah, I think you have to kind of find your your own uh, sense of the voice that you're interested in exploring as a visual person, but also, you know, realise that you're as you're coming through, as you're kind of building up your portfolio of work, that you're going to be learning through loads of the different experiences, even if they're slightly terrible at times, but you do learn a lot. And that that there comes Mm. a point where all of that learning really adds up to the job that you're doing. Follow your gut, follow your passion, and realize that it's a journey that will, it can stack up 
and that you will you can learn through every part of it. Wonderful. Thank you. Katrina, I, I really, really appreciate your time. No, thank you. Hopefully I'll see you very soon. And I look forward to many, many, many more years of practice. And, and me too. Lovely conversations. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. It's really great. I've loved it. That was Jonathan's conversation with Katrina. And again, I thoroughly enjoyed it. This is one of the, the few interviews that we've done. Um, and I'm happy to admit this, that when I was editing, I just, I got lost in the conversation. I think what she has to say in her journey is incredible. She's the first person we've spoken to that started straight out of university as a designer. Yeah, and knew what she was doing and where she was going. I think that's, um, that's, that's an important thing. And how sort of refreshing in terms of the, the, the journey of our podcast that, that we've got a practitioner who has just come into the world and found their own parameters Mm. and you know develop their own process through through effort and through trial and through you know sometimes not working sometimes working i mean in terms of the projects i i i'm i'm always you know that industry and that kind of that 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 work ethic and you know also the juggling not just at times on the project not just costume sometimes doing more than just costume and sometimes not doing costume and it's like no two projects ever seem not not no two projects are the same i mean none of the work she does on any of the two projects seem to be the same she's always changing and evolving by the sound yeah of it. yeah the, the, i think it's all about the evolving and and um it's about the people that she works with and and, and the nature of the projects well and again interesting to hear her talking about sabine um who we we know um and how important sabine is to to her and and and, and what she does the teams yeah yeah, yeah. It, back into this whole thing we keep coming up to with the team of because richard and i know sabine but we don't know katrina but again mm. it's it, it's all these links that people don't realize about and um until you speak to them and find out and which is i'm finding one of the things i find amazing with the with all these interviews is just finding out everyone who's connected to who and how yeah, you can almost do a sort of, it would be an extraordinarily convoluted one, but you could do a family tree, couldn't you? A costume tree of yeah. people who've worked yeah. for and then went on to do. And, you know, it would, it would be it would be a monkey puzzle of a tree, I suspect. But it's a uh, costume but, version of Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. <laughs> yeah, but the links are fascinating. The next interview we are going to be presenting is Richard's interview with Jill Taylor. Jill and I, again, go back away. We work together very successfully on some on some very good productions um i remember one first ones we did with two men went to war about a couple of couple of chaps who were in the army dental corps during the second world war and decided they weren't doing doing enough of their bit by just looking after people's teeth so they, they got a rowing boat and went across to france to undertake a bit of sabotage don't think it ended well but um, <laughs> <laughs> the production ended well i'm not sure that the story ended particularly well but uh, yeah i like working with jill a lot it's, it's a great interview and it's another it's another fascinating fascinating story again completely different from everyone else's she's a very strong determined woman and it comes across in her interview and her story as well and she she even talks about how she changed so i i it's another it's a great interview richard i really enjoyed it i think i think you've you've got a good working relationship with jill and it's been established over many years and what i also have observed about jill working watching how she processes her work is that she's again uh, got got this amazing a relationship with Charlotte, her yes, assistant stroke supervisor, and and the, the 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 level of understanding between the two of them, mm. and enables them to move forward very fast and get work done. And I've also noticed that Jill's relationship with other designers, in in a sort of camaraderie stroke non competitive sense, you know, because she'll come in and if she's not if she doesn't happen to be working. Because she loves the industry, I presume, and also, you know, to earn money when she's not working, she'll she'll happily kind of join in on 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 teams that are working on other projects. Yes, I mean, there's there's no ego getting in the way there, and she works. No, with, and I think that's important. With, yeah, she worked with Rebecca Hale on, I think, one of the Ab Fab films, wasn't it? So yeah, that, it's it, it it is refreshing because, as we know, there can be a certain amount of rivalry and 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 jealousy within within them yeah and, and, and compartmentalization because yeah. you, your head's down and you're doing your job and you're 
you know you're stuck in your world and 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 that's it but actually i feel that there's a sociability in terms of jill's approach and you know you see her dipping into that person's project and her own work and then someone else's project you know and it, and it's it's yeah. healthy because it gives you a, a much broader perspective of of what of, of what's actually happening in terms of meeting new people and experiencing different things and i do also like the fact that you know that when we've got various designers in here working you know our reception becomes some kind of social social meeting place doesn't it you know you quite mm. often see two yeah. or three of them assemble yeah. just sort of you know, chatting and catching up and stuff which is nice we hope you've been enjoying these conversations and here's a small excerpt from richard's chat with jill taylor i'm the head of department but equally i want everybody to be able to come and talk to me because I grew up with, you know, designers who they were very aloof and you couldn't go and talk to them. You couldn't share things. You couldn't ask certain things, you know, some people. So I just have that open door. Yeah, talk to me. I want to know everybody. I want to know everybody's problems on my team. And, you know, we're all in it together. You know, we are a team making making a piece of piece of entertainment.